this is, this is it in James. I think I've told you before, um, I'm sort of fascinated by uh, people who climb Mount Everest. Uh, I think it's a, just an unbelievable feat and uh, an amazing um, you know, task to undertake. And I was reading a little bit uh, about it this week and I don't know if you know this, but when you climb Everest, of course, it's a little over 29,000 feet tall, the summit, and there's a point that you reach at 26,000 feet where you enter what is called the death zone, um, which is very nicely named. Uh, And at at 26,000 feet up, the reason it's called the death zone is because the human body literally cannot survive in in those conditions for an extended period of time. You just can't, well, you won't make it. Um, the weather, the, the cold, the, the oxygen levels, the climbing hazards, all of that is, is there. And it's, it's like the mountain is trying to kill you when you get over 26,000 feet. Well, in 2006, there was an Australian climber named Lincoln Hall, and he had, he'd been on Everest before, But in this particular case, in 2006, with his team, he reached the summit of of Mount Everest. On the way down, though, which is when most people have problems, ironically, it's it's on the way back down the mountain. On the way down, because of the altitude, he he suffered a cerebral edema, which is a swelling on the brain due to the altitude, and he began to experience hallucinations and extreme fatigue basically collapses there on the side of the mountain. Well, the Nepali guides, who are called Sherpas, they spent hours trying to revive him, trying to wake him up, and trying to drag him down the mountain. But they couldn't do it. Um, Just too difficult. And a rescue operation at that altitude is so dangerous that they don't attempt them. Once you cross into the death zone, you're basically on your own when you get up there. And the reality is, is that to this day, there are bodies of people who died years ago that are still on the top of Everest, preserved in the cold, because you cannot go and get them down. It's just too dangerous. If you don't walk out of the death zone, you're not coming out of the death zone. So eventually, with Lincoln there, incapacitated, trying to get him down, the expedition leader had to make the call that it was too risky to to continue to try to get him down, and so they would just have to leave him there in order to save the rest of the team. So the next day, after they'd already contacted his family and told them that he died, they took his pack and took what they could and, and carried it down the mountain. The next day, another expedition from the U.S. is climbing to the summit, and there was an American climber named Don Mazur, and he found Lincoln alive. He'd survived the night, wearing only a thin fleece and no hat and no gloves. Well, the thing about it is climbing Everest is not just a up and down. It takes weeks of preparation and weeks of going up the mountain, and you only get one shot, one day at making the summit. It's tens of thousands of dollars in time and effort to get up there. And so when someone becomes incapacitated on the top, most of the time people don't stop to help them because they risk their own expedition and their own opportunity to make the top. 
Just days before, someone had died and no one stopped to help them because they all wanted to make the top. While Don noticed Lincoln still alive and still somewhat coherent without a fleece, and despite all of that, Don left his team and went over and carried Lincoln down the mountain in a four-hour grueling trek and literally saved his life. Amazing story. To rescue someone from danger by putting your own life at risk is really the ultimate act of selflessness. And what happened there with with Don was he had to, to do a couple of things. He had to recognize that there was danger, which was pretty obvious on the top of the mountain, and he had to have a willingness to act. He had to recognize that this person was in trouble and in danger, and then he had to be willing to act at some risk to his own life in order to save Lincoln. Now, obviously, I don't think any of us in here are going to be summiting Everest anytime soon. No, none of us are going to be in this sort of a situation in the death zone, but I'm afraid that there may be those around us from time to time within the church who are in serious spiritual danger. And, and the danger and the risk is quite high for them. And so the questions that we need to ask, are you and I aware of the danger? Do we even notice? Do we know that people are in danger of spiritual death around us? And then, like Don, are we willing to act on that? Are we willing to do anything or do we just continue going up the mountain and walking by and saying, eh, it's not my problem, it's their problem. And James is going to end his letter with us this morning by encouraging us to get involved in spiritual rescue. And spiritual rescue specifically within the community, the body of believers. James is going to say to us this morning, don't ignore the danger of sin by having an attitude like, well, it's none of my business. They put themselves in this situation. What am I going to do about it? As a body of believers, we can't have that attitude with one another. We're in this together, and we need one another's help, as you'll see this morning. So, James 5, verses 19 and 20, we're going to see three components of effective spiritual rescue. Three components of effective spiritual rescue. And the first one of these is exactly what Don on the mountain had to do. He had to recognize that there was a need which in his case was quite easy, but recognize the need for spiritual rescue. Now, to back up a little bit, we've seen throughout the book of James that there are two paths to wisdom, to, or to, two paths to live your life. One is a path of wisdom, and one is a path of foolishness. There's the wisdom from above, and there is the wisdom, the worldly wisdom from below that is self-centered. And that sort of description of two paths of life fits very much with the Old Testament. You see this in Psalm 1, you see this in Proverbs, there's the foolish way to live and the wise way to live, and that is, that's how James has presented the pursuit of wisdom to us. Two paths, two ways to live. Obviously, James wants us to go after wisdom. But as believers, there will be times in our lives where we are tempted by the foolish path. And we are tempted by our sinful desires, and we will act out of wisdom from below, out of self-centeredness, and we'll pursue the wrong things in our lives. Notice what James says in verse 19, my brothers, if 
anyone among you wanders from the truth. He's he's saying specifically anyone among you, anyone in your spiritual community. He's talking about someone who claims to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could well be someone sitting near you this morning. This person who is among you has wandered from the truth. Now, this language of wandering from the truth, this takes us back to, I think, one of the most beautiful parables that the Lord Jesus gave in Matthew 18. He says this, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has wandered or gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. When the sheep wander, when they go astray, the shepherd must go after them and must bring them back into the fold with the Lord Jesus. And this is a a command for the body of believers. This isn't just for pastors here, but this is actually given to the church body And it's given to the church body because the church is to reflect the character of our Lord. And look what the very next verse says about our Lord's desires. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He wants us to reflect his character by pursuing those who wander. Now notice again back in James verse 19 specifically what it looks like to wander. They wander from the truth. Now, initially, this may just sound like they have a bad doctrinal belief or an errant section of their theology. But that's not all this is about. That is part of this. We should be concerned if someone begins to believe and to espouse something that is errant doctrinally that doesn't line up with Scripture. But the Bible doesn't allow for this massive distinction between doctrinal beliefs and behavior. The Bible actually consistently ties our behavior to our doctrinal beliefs. They go hand in hand. Listen to, didn't get it on the screen, but let me read it to you in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. I think this is a very helpful description of of this uh, connection between doctrinal beliefs and behavior. Titus 1 and verse 16. About the false teachers, he says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, right? So they, they affirm that they know God. They say the right things, or at least attempt to say the right things, but their behavior denies that they know the Lord. They want to be doctrinally sound, but their lives betray the truth. And rather than that, believers, as Titus says later, or Paul says to Titus later, says this, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Those who have believed in God, who affirm doctrinal content and belief about God, must be careful to devote themselves to good works. Good works flow from right beliefs. 
And so to wander from the truth is not just to kind of have wrong doctrinal beliefs. It includes behavior and actions as well. One author put it this way. For James and his Jewish world, the truth is both what one knows and how one lives. Truth is the wedding of theology, gospel, and praxis or practice in our lives. And so when James here talks about wandering from the truth, look down at verse 20, and he sort of defines it there. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering. And so this wanderer is leaving the truth in belief or in action, behavior or doctrine, and he is or she is heading off into sin. They have left the fold in belief or action and are wandering off into a wrong doctrine or a wrong behavior. So what James is describing in verse 19, someone among you wandering from the truth, this is not an uncommon occurrence within the community of believers. And this is somewhat normal. And it's somewhat normal because sin is deceitful. Sin is clever. Sin catches us and, and tricks us. And we still have our sinful nature resident within us, fighting against the truth. And so at times we give in to that. We're prone to wander. We're prone to believe the wrong things and to do the wrong things and, and to want the wrong things. And so there will be times in all of our lives when we wander off into sinful patterns of living and believing. And when that happens... When someone you know and love wanders from the truth, that puts them in a dangerous situation. And we don't often think of it that way. But that's why James is so passionate about this and why he ends his letter talking about this important reality. I'm sure that some of you have seen online videos Maybe you don't watch videos of lions attacking herds of antelope or wildebeests, but I think they're fun to watch. And what is the tactic of the lions? What do they do? Well, they don't rush at the whole herd. Try to separate one antelope or one wildebeest from the herd. And they try to isolate them. They try to draw them away. They try to trick them into moving away from the herd and wandering away, and then they're vulnerable, and they're, they can take them down at that point. It's the weak, often, who are separated, maybe the young. The lions thrive on the wanderer, on the one who is loosely connected to the herd. And so it's always perilous for any follower of Christ to pursue sin without any knowledge and any input from other believers. No matter how strong you think you are, no matter how capable you may think you are, to not have another believer speaking into your life when you are pursuing a pattern of sin is to wander from the truth and to set yourself up for spiritual death. It's to be that antelope wandering away from the herd thinking, I'm good, I've got this. Don't mess with me, it's my life, I'll live it how I want to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a fantastic little book on community within 
the church, life together is the name of it. And he says this about sin. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. We, there's a reason that when we sin, we want to hide it from others and we want to keep it to ourselves. And that's what sin wants us to do so that we further and further create a schism between us and other believers and we isolate ourselves and then sin has us right where it wants us. And this is exactly why when we're aware, when you become aware, when I become aware of wandering in another believer, when I see someone who is heading off into sin and pursuing a pattern of sin in their lives, when I see that or you see that in a brother or sister in Christ, then we have to take action. We have to initiate a spiritual rescue in that circumstance. And that is the second element, second component of effective spiritual rescue. You recognize the need for it. You're on the lookout. You know how important this is. It's not something to be treated lightly. And then you take the action of spiritual rescue. So a sheep wanders from the fold, is vulnerable, alone. We need to take spiritual action. Look at the rest of verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that is the action that we take when someone wanders from the truth, is we attempt to bring them back. Now, the root idea here in this bringing back is is actually the same idea as the word repentance. And if you're familiar with that word, repentance, it's a very simple concept. The idea is that someone is walking this way, and to repent is to stop going that way and to turn 180 degrees and to go back the other way. That is repentance. That's what John the Baptist was calling people to in preparation for the Messiah. This is what the angel told his father, Zechariah about John, and he will turn, right? That's, that's the word. It's to bring him back. It's to repent. It's to turn. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what John's ministry was all about. Stop where you're going turn around, repent, and go in the opposite direction. Now in scripture, it's interesting, sometimes this repentance or this turning is attributed just to the the individual who is going the wrong direction, right? And so there are times where the Lord convicts your heart or my heart of sin, and I stop and I turn in faith from sin to him and start going the opposite direction. 1 Thessalonians describes this. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so the Lord works and people turn from sin and to the Lord. But sometimes it's not that simple. 
And James is describing a situation where a believer has wandered from the truth and it requires the help, the rescue of others to bring them back, to turn them around. In James 5.19, a fellow brother or sister is a part of this turning. They're involved in pointing out the wrong direction and helping the person to adjust course. And this is not the only point in the New Testament where this is mentioned, this sort of interaction. Matthew 18, we talked about this, I think, last summer. This whole passage, Matthew 18, but it describes this process where one believer goes to another believer and asks them and questions them about their sin and says, I'm seeing this in your life. And then you're looking for a good response from that person and a a repentance. And if not, then another two or three believers go with that person to help them to see their sin. And then eventually that process ends up in front of the whole church. And it ends up in front of the whole church, not to embarrass someone, but because sin is that serious. And it's that dangerous to continue to wander off away from the truth that we as a body want to do whatever we can to keep someone from heading off, from wandering away from the truth. Galatians 6 talks about it this way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I mean, it, it, I get it. It's a little uncomfortable, right? And, and it's really easy in our culture to hear this kind of teaching from the New Testament And then to think, man, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I don't want to do that. It's not my place to say anything. I don't want to be judgy of that other person, right? And so I I really just, I don't want to say anything to them. But, But the New Testament over and over again, gives us as followers of Christ, as fellow believers, the God given responsibility to rescue one another when we have opportunity, from wandering from the truth, calling a brother or sister to repentance for clear and significant sin in his or her life. Now, I I get it. This is, most people have never done anything like this before. It's uncomfortable, disorienting at times to think about this, but I want to try to help you, give you some principles to guide you as you think about this. If you notice and see a friend and a fellow believer wandering from the truth. What what should guide you in how you approach them and how you think through to doing this? These are just a few principles. I'm going to put them on the screen to help you process through this. The first one I would say is go to them in humility and patience. This is not a gotcha moment. not trying to embarrass them. And when the Bible talks about this over and over again, the New Testament exhorts us to to recognize our own sinfulness before we go and talk to someone else. Matthew 7 specifically addresses this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? And if you think about it, it's a pretty comical illustration, right? The guy who notices a teeny tiny you know, piece of sawdust in the other person's eye and who has this massive piece of wood in his own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Now, here's what can be tempting, though, as you read this passage. It can be tempting to to think, well, I'm sinful, I have my own issues, and so I can never talk to someone else about their sin issues, you know. But the point of Jesus' words here is not to avoid going. The point is, deal with your own sin, confess, forsake, repent, turn from your own sin, and then what does he say? Then you will see clearly. The Lord assumes and expects us to go. Not to say, well, I have my own issues, so I can't go. But that's not what he's teaching here. He's teaching us to deal with our own in humility and patience and then go to the other person. So I would start there, consider yourself, and then second, I would say this, encourage the good in the other person. So it's always wise to have an established relationship with someone before you confront them or deal with their sin that you're seeing. And this is particularly true with with close family and friends. Acknowledge the good in their lives. Be an encouragement. Speak words of that build up before you deal with their sin. And what this requires of us is preparation that looks for evidences of grace in those around us. We should, I should be the type of person that is alert, not just for sin in people's lives, but for evidence of God working in their lives. And I should speak and affirm that in them. So if I am constantly building up Marcel with words of encouragement and seeing evidences of grace in his life. And then there does come a point where I notice something in his life. It's that much easier and he knows my love and affection for him and he receives that as someone who honestly wants to help. That's the type of people that we want to be before we have to go and speak about sin and, and, and rescue someone from, from their sin. And so encourage the good not just in the conversation regarding sin, but in all areas of life, be that type of person so then when you have to talk about sin, it's, it's that much easier and more natural and more loving. I would say this too, acknowledge the circumstances. So be aware with someone that sometimes circumstances influence our wrong responses and lead to sin. So here's what I mean by this. I have, on occasion, been known by my family to be a little bit frustrated and short in the moments before mealtime because I have not eaten recently. And they call it being hangry. (laughs) And the, the, the circumstances influence. It doesn't excuse the sin, right? It doesn't say, oh, well, it's okay to act however you want to because you haven't, got, you haven't had a snack this afternoon. But the circumstances certainly influence the sin. And so to be aware of those and to say something like, Nathan, you were a little bit short with everyone this afternoon. I know you're hungry. I know you're not feeling well, but be aware of how you respond when you're not feeling well, right? And so sin may pop up in moments of of difficulty, of struggle, of stress, of loneliness, of physical pain. 
And so it doesn't excuse a wrong response, but to be aware of those and to acknowledge those circumstances to the person who you're talking to is very, very helpful in conveying that you honestly notice and care and concern and are concerned for them. I would say this too, fourth, don't confront every sin. This is not what we're looking for, right? We're not looking for nitpickiness over every single time someone responds wrongly or says a wrong thing. There are lots of times where we overlook an offense and we overlook a sin. There are lots of times where we don't say anything. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The Christian community would be a mess if we all confronted one another every time we messed up and every time any sin happened. There are moments to overlook a fault in grace and mercy. Acknowledge the circumstances and overlook that fault. But here's what James is calling us to. Be alert and be careful to notice when a pattern of sin is leading someone away from the truth when it's not just a blip on the radar, when this is something that is more significant and is changing this person and leading them away from the Lord, there are significant consequences to this sin. Then you need to be prepared to go to them. And you can't just say, well, I'm gonna let love cover a multitude of sins. And so this requires wisdom to know when to go and speak to a person and when to refrain and let love cover a multitude of sins. And that's why I would give this fifth one as the last one here. Ask for help. Ask for help. If you are aware of a wandering believer, you know they're headed down a path that they should not be on, that is spiritually dangerous to them. Don't just let them go. Go talk to someone. You don't have to give specifics. This happened to me in high school. I found out about a good friend of mine who was involved in something he should not have been involved in, and I didn't know what to do. And so I went to a teacher and gave the broad, general outline of what was happening and got very helpful advice and wisdom from that teacher. And that's what I'm saying here. You don't have to give specifics. You don't have to gossip. But go ask for help. I find most people, many people, have never attempted spiritual rescue before and don't know what to say, don't know how to approach this. So go and talk to an elder, talk to a pastor, talk to a good friend. and Get some advice and wisdom on how to do this. You don't have to give specifics, but ask for help. And ask for help because you're honestly caring, you're honestly concerned for that wandering follower of Christ. You don't want to see them go over the edge and get caught by sin alone. And so you're concerned for them. So seek out help. Now, ultimately, you take action. You get involved because of the results, because of what you're aiming for. And this is the third component of effective spiritual rescue. So you recognize the need. You take the action of bringing them back, of of pursuing them with all those principles in in mind, and then you seek the results of spiritual rescue. This is what we're going for when we pursue someone who's involved in sin. Seek the results in verse 20. 
It says this, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the goal. And we so often forget these goals, right? We, we so often think of the negatives. Is this person gonna get mad at me? Am I gonna lose a friend by opening my mouth up and asking them about their life and what they're involved in? But we have to keep these goals in mind when we pursue a wanderer because reconciliation is the goal. We want them to come back to the community and back to the Lord. The goal is not to judge someone. It's not to expose someone's sin. It's not to embarrass them. These are the goals. This is what we're after. You're not trying to control someone or be legalistic. You want to do two things. You want to save his soul from death and you want to cover a multitude of sins. We honestly, we forget how deadly sin is. We really do. Listen again to James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The end result of temptation and desire leading to sin is that sin leads to death. I mean, this is what we're trying to avoid. This is what we don't want. And this is why we pursue spiritual rescue of the wanderer. Now, I don't think James here is describing someone who is a believer and then loses their salvation. You know, they were in the church and then all of a sudden they... They ended up in spiritual death because they wandered off into sin. I don't think that's what he's describing here. But I think what he's doing is giving us a promise that God will use us as fellow followers of Christ to bring back the wanderer. To bring them back to him. We are part of God's plan in keeping others from spiritual death. We play a role in that. And beyond keeping them from spiritual death, we keep them from further and further sin. Look at the rest of verse 20. And will cover a multitude of sins. Sin compounds. Sin grows exponentially. You know, we, like, so we tend to think of sin like this. Like I'm driving down the road and it's a straight road. And sin is when I turn my car and go off the road. And then we think, oh, okay, I correct that. I repent of that sin and I get back on the road. And I'm good now and I'm going straight again. And we sort of think we return to neutral every time we commit a sin and then sort of get beyond the sin. But that's not how sin works. When we sin, it's like, and go off the road, it's like our alignment gets knocked out a little bit more every time. And our wheel starts to go to the right more and more naturally. And so when we sin without dealing with it fully before the Lord and turning from it, then we more and more naturally go to the right and more and more naturally go off the rails. Sin compounds. And that's what James is, is telling us is one of the benefits here of pursuing the spiritual wanderer is we cover, we erase 
We eradicate a multitude of sins that would have come from allowing this person to continue off into their sinful ways. So we pursue spiritual rescue. Now, I think this is a fitting end to this letter. It, it can seem kind of abrupt, like, whoa, that kind of came out of nowhere, James. Why are you talking about this at the end of this? But I think this is a fitting end because at times, James, this book can really seem like it's heavy on commands and on law, if we're honest with ourselves. It seems like a pretty high standard for us to pursue wisdom for wholeness. It can be really easy to read this book and think, I'm not up to the task. I can't do this. But I love that James ends this way because he reminds us that even when we get off the road, even when we're wandering from the truth, there is reconciliation to be had. There is forgiveness. There's always mercy with the Lord. The soul can be saved from death. A multitude of sins can be covered and erased that we would have committed had we continued along this path. And so I think James ends this way to remind us of God's kindness and God's providence in our lives. And in his kind providence, he has given us one another to help us in this process of growth towards spiritual wholeness. It's like going back over this whole book and thinking, I need each one of you to help me in understanding and applying these guidelines toward wisdom. And when I stray from these things, I need you to help bring me back into alignment and to turn back toward the truth. And so James is ending by saying, don't be afraid to go after the wanderer. Consider the joyful results of verse 20 and let those results motivate you to love and care and concern for one another as we pursue wisdom toward wholeness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this text. I pray that you would motivate us and encourage us with this. Help us to be people who love one another and are passionate about holiness within the body of Christ. Thank you for our time together. It's in his name we pray. Amen.